Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord for guidance and direction in our time of study. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and one of the things that distinguishes you, according to the prophet Isaiah, from all of the false gods and false religions and philosophies in the world, is that you are able to declare the end from the beginning. You are the God of prophecy. You are the God who foretells the future, and that that which you have foretold always comes to pass precisely and exactly as it has been recorded in Scripture. And, Father, in your telling of the future, that is not simply to stimulate our curiosity, but it is to inform us of our destiny, that there is a plan and a purpose, and that if we understand where you are taking us and where we are headed, then that is to challenge us, encourage us, and motivate us to live today in light of eternity. Father, your word explains to us all that you have done for us and all that you have provided for us, all that you have given us in our spiritual life. And now we pray that under God the Holy Spirit, as we study your word this morning, that we might be able to focus, to concentrate, and that God the Holy Spirit would take the things that we study in your word, these eternal truths, and that he would challenge each of us in our own spiritual life with the things we need to apply. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, and we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is often thought of as this stimulating book of prophecy related to the end times, and you'll find uh, numerous people who seem to approach the study of prophecy from that uh, aspect of trying to figure out uh, where we are on some sort of historical timeline, how close we are to the return of Jesus, and trying to identify the signs of the times. This is not why God has given us prophecy. Much of the Bible that was, uh, when it was originally revealed, was revealed as prophecy. Some of that has been fulfilled. Much has not been fulfilled. But there is a, there are several reasons in Scripture 
that God has revealed certain aspects of the future to us, and they don't have anything to do with satisfying our curiosity or stimulating uh, our interest in terms of trying to figure out where we are on some prophetic uh, timetable or figuring out what time it is in some prophecy stopwatch countdown. And there are various things that uh, we can learn from studying prophecy about how we should be responding to the truths that we are studying. Uh, he, uh, Revelation 8.1 is one of those verses that gives us a clue as to the kind of response we should have. But before we get into the uh, chapter itself, I want to bring your attention back to where we are in terms of the overall uh, panorama within the prophetic section of Revelation. As we've studied, uh, Revelation uh, 1 through 3 focus on that which has, has already occurred in chapter 1, and the chapters related to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 focus on the trends in the current church age. Then there is a break between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And chapter 4, through the end of the book of Revelation, focuses on the future, unfulfilled prophecy, that which will take place at some time yet future. We don't know when that will be. It could be at any moment, but there are no, uh, there are, uh, there's no way of knowing exactly when this will come about because this period of time known as the tribulation and then later the millennium, this period of time will be preceded by the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is a signless event. There is no prophecy that must be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. It is referred to as imminent. We studied the doctrine of imminency that this means that, that Jesus could come back at any moment. And so we always have to be prepared. We have to be ready in light of the uh, imminency of the rapture. Following the rapture, there is this period of the known as the tribulation, a period of unprecedented horror on the earth because it is the culmination of the outpouring of God's judgment on sin and evil and rebellion that has occurred in history, not just human history, but also angelic history. And what happens in the tribulation period is that all of these loose threads that we see earlier in the Scripture and in human history are all pulled together and finalized as God brings human history to its, its ultimate end in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and establishment of his kingdom on the earth. As we go through Revelation, it's important to understand how things get laid out because people can easily become confused. The scene shifts from one place to another between earth and heaven. And in this section, we saw that in chapters 4 and 5, the scene was in heaven, the heavenly throne room scene where God the Father is on his throne, and in his hand there is a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And the angels are looking for one who is qualified to take the seal, uh, take the scroll, open the seals, and to uh, implement that which is in the scroll. The scroll represents a title deed to the earth. 
and it is uh, the only one who is qualified to take the scroll is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is depicted in chapter 5 as the Lamb of God. The Lamb comes forward, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, and he comes forward and he takes the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll, and at the beginning of chapter 6, the scene shifts to the earth, and the Lord Jesus Christ begins to open the scroll. He begins to open those seals, and chapter 6 focuses on the first six judgments that must take place as the Lamb is executing the justice of God on the earth and bringing uh, sin to a conclusion, purifying the earth for the establishment of his reign upon the earth. And so in chapter 6, we studied the six seal judgments. And then chapter 7 shifts the focus back to heaven. And in chapter 7, we found the answer to the question, who can stand in the midst of these uh, judgments? And the answer is relates to two groups of people. On the one hand, the Jews who will be saved during the tribulation period as a result of the evangelistic ministry of the uh, 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are sealed at the, in the first part of Revelation chapter 7. This takes place, I believe, during the time of the seal judgments. And then the second half of the, of the chapter focuses on those who, those believers who are martyred, <clears throat> those believers who are martyred during the, this same period, primarily during the uh, fifth seal judgment, which, which relates to martyrdom, uh, the, the martyrdom of all of these believers who become the enemies of the Antichrist and his kingdom on the earth. And so chapter 7 focuses on God's grace, that even in the midst of judgment, there is grace and there are millions who will be saved during the tribulation period. And so chapter 7 focuses on what happens within the same time frame as those initial uh, seal judgments. And then chapter 8 comes along, Eight and nine focus on what focuses again on what happens on the earth in the next series of judgments. For when the seventh seal is open, it reveals seven more judgments. These are identified as the trumpet judgments. And so we have looked at the timeline, the overall framework of <clears throat> the period of the of the tribulation, the period of revelation from chapter four on. Uh, you have the rapture of the church that occurs before 4-1. Then you have the beginning of the tribulation period, seven-year period divided into two three-and-a-half-year segments. During the first part of the first half, approximately 20, 21 months, we have the six-seal judgments poured out. And these are then followed by the seven trumpet judgments. I believe all of these transpire before the midpoint of the tribulation, which is when the Antichrist uh, truly unveils his religious agenda as he sets up an idol, a statue of himself, to be worshipped in the Holy of Holies in the tribulation temple that will be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And then the second half of the tribulation is related to the seven bold judgments. So if you can just remember seven seals, seven trumpets, 
seven bowls, then you have a basic framework for understanding what transpires in the tribulation period. Now, when we come to chapter 8, the first thing we read is, in verse 1, is when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What this shows us is the heavenly response to the prophetic revelation that occurs at this particular time. This indicates one of the responses we should have to prophecy, and I will develop that as we look at some other uh, biblical examples. I believe that this silence in heaven that we see at this particular time is related to several passages in the Old Testament that relate to this time period. The most uh, specific of which is found in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And that term, day of the Lord, is a technical term that's used in the Old Testament to refer to a time of divine judgment, a time of divine judgment. When we come to various prophetic passages, the term day of the Lord can have a a broader and a narrower uh, meaning. I believe here it has the narrower meaning, which is restricted to those final judgments that occur at the end of the tribulation period. But before that period occurs, there is a time of silence. This precedes uh, that end time, those end time judgments culminating in the campaign of the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And so this terminology from Zephaniah 1.7 focuses our attention on that final period at the end of the tribulation. But this silence precedes that as the judgments intensify in the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments, everything focusing on uh, preparing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the seven-year period. Psalm 76 verse 8 tells us that this silence preceding judgment or related to judgment is a pattern that we see in Scripture. For Psalm 76 focuses back on God's deliverance of the Jews from their slavery in Egypt. And in verses 8 and 9 we read, You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. Judgment from God should produce in us an attitude and mentality of fear as we realize there is accountability. There is a time for everyone in the future where we will have that report card from God. For believers, there is a different aspect to that report card. For the basis of our performance as believers is related to the rewards at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, And that relates to our future in the millennial kingdom, our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests, a royal priesthood during the millennial period. 
For those who have never trusted Christ as Savior, the issue is going to be presented at the great white throne judgment, where the issue will be whether or not they have the kind of righteousness God requires to come into heaven. And at the end of chapter 20, we'll study the great white throne judgment where the books are open and God evaluates those that are not believers on the basis of their works. And their works are not adequate to measure up to that perfect righteous standard that God requires to come into heaven because these have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, John 3.18. And as a result of that, they do not have the righteousness of God. They have an inadequate righteousness based on human works, and they are spiritually dead still, dead in their trespasses and sins, so there is no entry for them into heaven. Judgment should cause the believer to stop and think, because even though our destiny is secure in heaven, there are dimensions to God's judgment that are uh, truly Uh, awful in the sense of awful, awe-inspiring, because we should be brought to a standstill, almost stop dead in our tracks, as we contemplate that which God must do in order to, uh, to carry out his judgment of sin, to fulfill his own character. And as we study these judgments, We should be reminded that this is necessary because of the horror of sin, because of the devastating consequences of sin in personal lives, in history, and in the way it affected all of God's creation. Another passage that reflects upon this is in Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple, that is, his residence in heaven. A temple is a dwelling place of God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So we see that one of the responses that we should have to prophecy is that of silence, that of reflection, that of realization of the seriousness, the significance of God's judgment. Many people, though, have a problem with prophecy. They think it just has to do with satisfying people's curiosity, doing newspaper exegesis, trying to figure out how close we are to the end times, with all the people crying perhaps for some sort of world solution to the uh, collapse of the markets, uh, problems in uh, international economics. Uh, This is the kind of scenario, I'm not saying it is, I'm saying this is the kind of scenario that will transpire prior to the tribulation, as there is an international crisis that uh, propels people to seek a one-world leader who can solve their problems, solve the economic problems, solve the political problems, and bring peace upon the earth. But we don't study prophecy for that reason. When we ask the question, why study prophecy, we ought to be aware of a couple of statistics. First of all, 28% of the Bible was prophetic when it was revealed. 28%, that's over one quarter of the verses in the Scripture, uh, were, were unfulfilled prophecy when they were initially given. 15% of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy still unfulfilled. So we have to have an understanding of these to be able to 
uh, truly understand and interpret the rest of Scripture. 18% of the New Testament epistles, that's one out of almost every five verses in the New Testament, is unfulfilled prophecy. So to understand almost 20% of the New Testament, we have to have an understanding of God's prophetic plan. Uh, one in 12 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. One in 10 verses in the epistles refer to the second coming of Christ. And 60% of the verses in the New Testament are affected in terms of their interpretation by eschatology in order to be properly understood. So prophecy is an extremely important uh, area of theology to study and be aware of because of its uh, impact on the rest of Scripture. So as I pointed out, prophecy is not something given to satisfy human curiosity about the future, like those who read their uh, astrological charts in the daily paper, but prophecy is given to us to remind us of God's character. As it focuses on God's character, it then works itself out in terms of God's plan and purpose for his creation. It reminds us of his sovereignty, that God is the one who is the ultimate ruler in history. The kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. Empires will rise and fall. Nations will rise and fall, ultimately at the determination of God. And this is seen especially in the prophecies in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Second thing we are reminded of is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is as Daniel writes his prophecies, Daniel is no longer in Jerusalem in the promised land that God had given to, Ab- to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Daniel is virtually a, a captive. He is an expatriate who has been taken from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar along with uh, many other young men taken to Babylon where he has been re-educated and retrained, partially, to function in the administrative bureaucracy of the Babylonian Empire. But he, and especially his three friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, have, been, uh, have be- preserved themselves and their integrity by standing firm for the Word of God. And they, have been a tr- they are a tremendous testimony. But this the prophecy that's given Daniel is given in order to comfort and encourage the Jews, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, in that while they are out of the land, God is going to be faithful to his promises and will eventually bring them back to the land and fulfill those promises. So prophecy teaches us that God is faithful to his word and to his promises. Prophecy also emphasizes God's righteousness and justice, for in these prophecies there's a focal focal point on God's ultimate judgment of sin, evil, for the rebellion of his creatures against him, both angelic and human. And in these judgments there is still the emphasis on grace, and in prophecy we are reminded of God's love, we are reminded of his goodness, so, so many millions will be saved during the tribulation period, and we are reminded of his grace. So for us as believers, we are to study prophecy because it motivates us 
to prepare for eternity. We are living today in light of eternity. What we will be in eternity is determined by the decisions that we make today. So this specifically challenges us to get our priorities straight, to make the study and application of God's Word the highest priority in our life. And third, this emphasizes that uh, it is through the study of prophecy that our confidence in the Scripture and in the Lord is strengthened. Now, as we look at prophecy, addressing the question of why study prophecy, there are several responses given to prophecy in the Word of God. And these responses are not responses related to uh, people who are just interested about what God's going to do in the future or what's going to happen in their future. So many people focus on prophecy and they want to know how, what's going to happen to me. It's just a very uh, narcissistic sort of view of prophecy. We get into the book of Daniel, though, we see a number of different responses. So we're just going to sort of think our way through the book of Daniel and how people, different people responded to those tremendous revelations that were given in the book of Daniel. Well, the first major prophecy that is given in the book of Daniel is the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. If you're not familiar with this, you can go back and listen to the series that I've taught on Daniel. But in that event, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in that dream he saw this statue, and uh, the head was of gold, the chest of silver, the torso of brass, the legs of iron, and then the lower legs and feet, uh, iron and clay, with, uh, uh, including the ten toes. And this picture is the flow of history through the Gentile kingdoms. The head of gold was the, uh, at that time, current Babylon. Daniel interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar and says, You, O king, are the head of gold. The silver would represent the uh, Medo-Persian Empire that would begin in 539 B.C. The uh, abdomen of brass would represent the kingdom of Greece as, uh, as it is, was established by Alexander the Great. The legs of iron represented the Roman Empire and the mix of iron and clay, the future uh, descendant of that empire, the revived Roman Empire. Nebuchadnezzar saw this dream again and again, and it troubled him deeply and he sought for someone, anyone who could identify that dream. And he was a, a very intelligent and cagey leader. You don't develop an empire like his without being smart. And so he knew that it would be easy for his uh, wise men, his astrologers and soothsayers, to dupe him into some sort of pseudo-interpretation. So he had a little test. They not only had to interpret the dream, they had to tell him what it was. He wasn't going to give him any clues, and, and there was a penalty of death if they couldn't tell him the meaning of the dream. And that shows how, how upset that Nebuchadnezzar was over this dream. It left him sleepless at night, and he was deeply troubled by it, although he had no idea what it meant. He knew it was important, and eventually Daniel came forward. Daniel, uh, because of his relationship with God, God revealed to Daniel the meaning of the dream, and the meaning had to do with the destinies of, of the kingdom of Babylon as well as the Gentile kingdoms. But I want you to notice 
without getting into the details of the prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face in Daniel 2.46, and he did homage to Daniel. No, it's not to God at this point, but to Daniel, and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And at this time, we see an initial response of Nebuchadnezzar to prophecy where he is relieved, but he's not yet really impressed by God. He he can now sleep at night. He's had an answer to his question. His uh, curiosity has been somewhat satiated, but he has no real change, which the Bible refers to as repentance. In Daniel 2.47, we read, Then the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. You know, he hasn't gotten rid of the pantheistic, or, uh, yeah, polytheistic idea of multiple gods. He said, Your God has got to be the greatest of all the gods, as opposed to the only God. He said, Surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. But his basic problem has not uh, changed. He is still rather, uh, rather arrogant. So what we see is that he is like a lot of unbelievers. When they hear anything about Christianity or the Bible, they are, they may be somewhat impressed. It's an interesting system. It's an interesting religion. Uh, they hear some Bible teaching. They become a little bit curious about it. They may become uh, somewhat intellectually stimulated by uh, Christianity, but it's only a superficial level. It's only a superficial level. It never uh, impacts the way they think. They never uh, decide to trust God. It's just a very superficial response. Unfortunately, after salvation, there's a lot of believers that are like that. They, they're saved, they know they're going to go to heaven, they're glad they're going to go to heaven, but they, are, uh, they don't have any deep response to anything else in the Word of God. So their lives often are no different from unbelievers, except they know that the Bible is true, but unfortunately they choose to let the details of life uh, crowd out their spiritual priorities. And they, before long, uh, they just sort of let their relationship with God float uh, completely uh, to the back burner in their life, and they never uh, develop any kind of real change. Now, the reason I emphasize that is as we go back to the first uh, to chapters 2 and chapter 3 in Revelation, remember these are the seven letters that were written to the church, and each of these letters are the divine report cards on these churches. And the Lord was saying that uh, you need to uh, pay attention to the strengths and the weaknesses here. And then he would say, repent. And the idea was you need to change. Now that you know what's good and what's bad, you need to change. And then there is a reward for the one who is the overcomer, the one who continues to persevere in spiritual growth and application and the one who actually changes their response to the Word of God is such that it changes the way they think and changes the way they live. 
Otherwise, you're left in the trap of arrogance, which is what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. He is a perfect depiction of one who has mastered the arrogant skills. Arrogant skills begin with self-absorption. We focus on ourselves. We come out of the womb like that. We are totally consumed with our own needs and getting them fulfilled. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence because we have this need. We want to uh, indulge in it, and then we justify it. Uh, It's right. It's good. We figure out all kinds of rationales to justify our self-absorption. This leads to self-deception, and we begin to generate uh, false views of reality that ultimately allow us to justify all of our self-absorption and self-indulgence. And ultimately, this leads to self-deification. All of this is seen in the progression in Romans chapter 1, but it is it's displayed in, a, in an incredibly visual way by Nebuchadnezzar. For in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to build this enormous statue of himself, and he is going to demand on penalty of death that everyone in his kingdom bow down and worship this idol of himself, the ultimate in self-deification. And so we see that he has had no real change, no response at all to what God revealed to him in the vision of Daniel chapter 2. And so he goes on to his, uh, expressing his own, um, his own self-deification. Now, the penalty for not worshiping this, this statue was death, death in a fiery furnace. And there were three who did not Submit. Daniel apparently was not in the country at the time, for he's not mentioned at all in that chapter. And so these three friends of his, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their uh, pagan Babylonian names, refused to bow down and worship the idol. Most of you know the story that, that it made Nebuchadnezzar so angry that he had the fire stoked up until it was seven times hotter than normal. And then it was so hot that when they... Uh, his attendants, his guards, went to put uh, the three men into the fiery furnace. It was so hot that they were incinerated in the process, and yet God miraculously preserved the three men in the process. And when Nebuchadnezzar went to look in, he couldn't believe his eyes that they were still alive. He didn't see three in the fire. He saw four, and he said, the fourth is like the Son of God. So again, he has been... Uh, impressed with the revelation of God, and he has a slightly more uh, intense response. He's impressed now, but not so that he changes. And in verse 28, we read him saying, Blessed be the God, which is an expression of praise, praise for the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, and as much as there's no other God is able to deliver in this way. So he's so impressed that he's going to legislate that everybody needs to treat their God with honor, but it's notice it's their God. Well, in chapter 4, there's going to be another dream. And this dream relates to what God is going to do personally to Nebuchadnezzar because of his arrogance. And for a period of seven years, God disciplined 
and judged Nebuchadnezzar so that he was, he became insane. He thought he was an animal. He lived out in the fields, slept out in the fields, ate grass, and was not in his right mind at all. He was completely psychotic. And then at the end of the seven years, God gave him back to his right mind. And at the conclusion of that event, Nebuchadnezzar praises God and expresses this praise in terms of his own personal salvation. So prophecy is also given for the purpose of evangelism. I can't tell you how many uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, have gotten saved reading Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and some of his other prophetic books, but specifically that one some years ago, uh, Dr. Uh, Earl Rodmacher was asked what he thought about uh, Hal Lindsey's books. He said, well, I don't think very much about them, but apparently God does. <laughs> and again, hundreds of thousands of people have gotten saved reading the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And God uses prophecy to uh, challenge people with the fact that they need to be saved. So Nebuchadnezzar expresses his relationship with God he, in Daniel 4.37 saying, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. His personal testimony. So Nebuchadnezzar represents one response initially, that is response of relief, but not being impressed. Secondly, in the second event, he's impressed but he's not repentant. And so God has to lower the boom on him, and he finally changes. He submits himself to the authority of God uh, as God has smashed his arrogance, and he submits to God. A fourth response to prophecy is seen in the fifth chapter of Daniel. And this is the opposite response to what Nebuchadnezzar gave, and that is a complete rejection of God coming out of pure arrogance. And this is seen in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, great-great-grandson, uh, Belshazzar, who is the co-regent with his father, uh, Nabonidus. And uh, in Daniel chapter 5, we have a situation that many people are familiar with, the handwriting on the wall that took place. In Daniel, uh, it's a situation where uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, where Belshazzar is having this uh, uh, tremendous dinner in the palace, and at the same time he knows that outside the walls of the city are the armies of the Medes and the Persians. And in the midst of this revelry, we read, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand, the hand from the wrist to the tips of the fingers, that is what appears, emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And what was written on the wall was this phrase, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. And the meaning of these words, Mina, refers to that which is numbered. Tekel indicates that it's related to the term shekel. It means something that is weighed out. And Upharsin is a half a mina, and it indicates something that is divided. Now, the interpretation of the meaning is then given by Daniel. Daniel has been ignored by Belshazzar. He knows all the stories about it. Nebuchadnezzar, he knows about Daniel. He's heard all this, but he has completely rejected God. He doesn't have anything to do with 
the truth or with God's word. He is just completely hostile to the truth. And so now God is going to judge him. And he is scared to death when he sees this, for that is one response to prophecy. And finally they find the queen mother. She comes out and she says, well, there's this Jew named Daniel that's somewhere back in a closet somewhere in your administration. And if you get him out here, he... Uh, he told uh, Nebuchadnezzar what he dr- his dreams meant, and he can tell you what your dream means, and what, I mean what this handwriting means. And so they brought Daniel out. And Daniel said, first of all, the first phrase, Mene, Mene, means that your number's up. <laughs> Second thing is, the tekel means that you don't measure up. And third, Paris means that your kingdom is divided. You will be divided up. And there's an interesting play on words there because the word Paris, uh, for Upharsin, is a, if you take the, the vowels out, what you have is just the consonants P-R-S, which are the same consonants in the word Persia. So God uses a little pun here to indicate that his kingdom would be, be not, would be divided, but it would be basically Persianized. And what is Belshazzar's response. It's a lot like Nebuchadnezzar's the first time. He's going to honor Daniel. He's going to dress him up, but he has no interest in believing what Daniel says. He just finally laid things to rest, and Belshazzar's not going to change in response to God's word. He's going to keep on doing uh, what he was, uh, what he wants to do. Verse 29 of chapter 5, we read, Then Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. But that didn't mean anything because at that very time, the armies of the Persians were already breaching the walls of the city, and that very night, Belshazzar the king would be slain. And so this shows us that there are many people who seem to have an external positive response towards Christianity, but they really don't want to have uh, anything to do with it. Now, briefly, there are two other responses that we see in Daniel, and both of them are seen in Daniel himself. After the visions in the vision in Daniel 7, which again relates to this progression of kingdoms, when it's all over with and he sees how things are going to culminate in history, the coming of the Son of Man, his destruction of the kingdoms of man and establishment of his own kingdom, Daniel Daniel writes in verse 28, at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And the word translated alarming is a word that indicates to be frightened, to be terrified. Now, he's not terrified for himself, but as Daniel sees and understands and comes to grips with what God is going to do to bring uh, sin and evil to its final culmination in judgment, it is extremely sobering. It is frightening to realize how horrible sin is and the horrible consequences of evil and what must be done in order to bring that to ultimate judgment. And Daniel's response is that he is uh, profoundly disturbed as he realizes what God must do to judge sin and evil. 
This same word that's translated alarming is also expressed in Daniel 4.19 that he, when he understood uh, the dream for uh, Nebuchadnezzar there, he was also appalled and frightened and alarmed. In Daniel 8, we have another expression of his response. I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. I dare say none of you have read the book of Revelation and walked away thinking that you were sick for days because you really understood the, the depths and the horrors of what God's judgment would bring. Sometimes we think, much like the martyrs express it in their prayers in Revelation 6, that we pray God would finally bring this judgment on earth. But to come face to face with what that means is what happens in Revelation 8.1 and their silence in heaven for about a half an hour. One other thing that happens as a result of prophecy is that we as believers are strengthened and encouraged spiritually. When Daniel sees the, the, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 10 that's expressed in Daniel 11, uh, an angel appears to him, and in Daniel 10:18 we read, Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me saying in verse 19, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And what we see in this passage is several words that all reflect the same Hebrew word, strengthen, to be courageous, all reflect the Hebrew word chazak, which indicates in some passages just to be strengthened. Other passages, it has the idea of courage, whether it's physical, moral courage, or spiritual courage. And it's the same idea that is expressed in the promise that we frequently claim in the New Testament, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Actually, the word for strengthening is the verb there that should be translated, I am strengthened to do all things through Christ who empowers me. That word empower there is the same word we find in Ephesians 6.10, the great passage on spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is the Lord who gives us the power to be strong in the midst of difficult circumstances, whatever those circumstances may be. And here we have Daniel who is fearful, Daniel who is in a state of uh, a weakness, emotional turmoil, and yet it is God who strengthens him, and it is through the Word of God that he is strengthened and empowered, and that is one of the impacts of prophecy because it reminds us that no matter how chaotic our world may be, that when we face possible international collapse of of world markets, when we are faced with uh, political uh, despair, whatever the circumstances may be, military defeat, whether it involves our personal crisis, whatever it may be, it is God's word that strengthens and empowers us to be able to face and handle any of those circumstances. And when we understand God's plan for history and that prophetic plan that helps us to understand God's plan and purpose for our lives, then it enables us to focus on what we're doing today to understand that there is a plan and a purpose, even though we may not understand all of the details, it does give us that ability to focus 
It gives us that ability to recognize that there is a plan and a purpose. And no matter how tumultuous, how chaotic uh, things may appear in our lives right now, we can claim those promises, we can understand those prophetic principles, and it gives us stability in the midst of crisis. And when we look at what's going on in our world today, we can go through some horrendous crises, and it is only believers who have answers, who are going to be able to look at whatever happens, whatever the circumstances may be, even if it involves something as drastic as with Daniel, where he was taken as a hostage to a conquering nation. He is able to relax and to have joy in the midst of that crisis because of his trust in the Lord and the principles he understands from God's word. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by these principles, to recognize that you have declared the end from the beginning. And history is not just some sort of scope of what happens to the human race as a whole, but it but we have a part to play in history for our lives are part of that history. And in the outworking of your plan in history, ultimately this will lead to your glorification. And our role is to orient our thinking to your plan, your purpose, orient our, our own thinking to your work in history. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, are uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. When he hung there between heaven and earth, he had you in mind. He paid the penalty for your sins. The issue now is whether or not you will trust in him. At that instant, you will be forgiven of sin. You will be justified. You will receive eternal life, and you will be made alive together with Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.